So uh, I'm going to start with a controversial claim. Ready? The best music in the world is jazz. If you've not listened to jazz much or you think it's just a bunch of like random notes and chaos, uh, you need to listen more. You need to, you need to sit with it for a while. When I was uh, in grad school in Philadelphia, I took a yearly trip to uh, New York City to a jazz club called the Village Vanguard, which is one of the truly magical places on the face of the earth. Um, it is a, a jazz club underneath um, the ground, it seats maybe 130 people, and it's a place where some of the best jazz musicians who have ever lived and played have played. Um, and I would take this trip with friends, uh, many of whom were not that familiar with jazz, and so on the way up, I would give a jazz lecture. And at one point, there was a pre-assignment, so they had to listen to stuff and then like write down notes and thoughts, and all of this was in the attempt to help them appreciate what they were about to experience. Because the beautiful thing about jazz music and why it, it so grips me and I love it so much is, so you have, you have a song and you have musicians, right? And there's, there's a feel to the song and there's a structure and then there's the harmony, the chords. And in that, it's not different. Everything we just played you know, a few minutes ago had all of those elements. But then the beautiful thing about jazz is from that foundation of the groove, the feel, the structure, and the harmony, the musicians then make new melodies. And they compose on the spot and in the moment with one another. And uh, just this past month, I've seen Christian McBride, this fantastic musician, twice uh, in, the, in the city of Chicago. And it is amazing to listen to someone who has so dwelt in the music and it so resonates in him that he can just, in a moment, he plays upright bass and he can just start going on that bass and everything he plays, it fits perfectly with the music, it is true to the song and yet it is this new and fresh expression in the moment with all the musicians there. Um, and living the Christian life, is a lot like jazz. This is true in lots of different ways, but I want you to think about it, right? The Bible does not give us note for note how to do everything. And we could list so many examples of this, but let me just give one, parenting, right? You can read the books on kids and development, and that's great, and that's good, and you can think deeply about the gospel of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and what that looks like and how you might shepherd a child's heart and yet, if you have kids or you're in the lives of kids, you know every child is different. Every personality is different. The situation is different. The temperament is different. There are so many factors that are different that you're left in a moment of trying to encourage a child or help a child or discipline a child to improvise. It's not flying by the seat of your pants just doing random things, but it's trying to be faithful, wise, and creatively love. The Christian life is a lot like jazz. There is the structure and the harmony that we get in Scripture. There are the things that the Bible teaches us about God and ourselves and this world. And you can think of right, the grand narrative of the Bible centered on Christ and the redemptive work of God. And all of this is like the story. It's the harmony 
that we're meant to have dwell in us and to marinate in and from that then go out into the world and improvise faithfully, creatively, wisely living and following Jesus. And here's why I'm talking about this today. This isn't just me going off on a subject that I love. Um, We're in a sermon series and we've been talking about this new way of life that's been opened up to us through the resurrection of Jesus. We've been saying each week that we are living in a time where more and more people are, are feeling and recognizing that life is not working. We're in a time that we refer to as the age of alienation. That increasingly as a society, we're, we're disconnected. We're disconnected from other people. We're disconnected in some ways from ourselves. We're disconnected from the world. We're disconnected often from God and from the people of God. And yet the good news that we celebrated on Easter Sunday and that we celebrate every week here at Trinity, but we've been especially thinking about in this sermon series is how God came into the world in the person of Jesus and perfectly loved God and loved his neighbor and then went to the cross to die for us, but then was raised again from the dead and through his resurrection, this new way of life has been opened to us. And last week, uh, Jeff preached really like kind of one of the pivotal, probably the pivotal sermon in the series. So if you didn't listen to it, you should really go back and listen to it. Um, But where Jeff was saying, this way of wonder that we've been talking about the last four or five weeks The way that gets worked out is in the church. It gets worked out together. That you can't do this new way by yourself. If you are someone who believes in Jesus, you've been united to Jesus by faith, you belong to Jesus, and through that now, you are united and belong to one another, his body. And so we need one another to live this way. So this morning, I want to I take kind of going off of what Jeff said last week and think a little bit deeper about the way of Jesus and the household. A few times in the sermon series, Jeff's mentioned a book by Andy Crouch that is really fantastic, and I would encourage you to maybe get it and read it. It's called The Life We're, All, the Life We're Looking For. And he has a chapter devoted to this subject, the household. So I want to start by defining, giving his definition of a household. Listen to this. A household is a community of persons who may take shelter under one roof, but also and more fundamentally take shelter under one another's care and concern. Let me say that again. Think about what he's saying. A household is a community of persons who may take shelter under one roof, but also and more fundamentally take shelter under one another's care and concern. He goes on to say this, this quality of households, the way they extend beyond family formed by birth or marriage is especially important because it means that unlike family, households are places where every person can find a home. Widows and especially orphans have lost crucial members of their family, but they can and should be welcomed into households. Some people have outlived or been separated from all the family they know in the world, but they can still be members of a household. In our modern world, the demographic reality is that many people will never marry, but that doesn't mean that they cannot join a household. And this is why I wanted to begin by talking about jazz. 
Because what we're going to think about this morning, while I hope you will see it is grounded in Scripture, we don't have a simple step-by-step way to live as households following in the way of Jesus in the 21st century. So here's what I want to do. I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 2, which I'm going to call the foundational harmony, the chordal structure for understanding what the point of the household is. And then second, I want us to briefly consider how the foundational harmony of Ephesians 2 gets worked out and transforms the household in the New Testament era. And then finally for us to ask the question, if this is all true, what would it look like in our day to do faithful, creative household living in the way of Jesus? So first, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, the foundational harmony. In every culture, you tend to have divisions within that culture of, of people who can't or won't live together and share life together. Those divisions could be based on wealth or social status or politics or race or something else. But in the first century world, one of those divisions, a division that went back centuries, was the division between Jew and Gentile. And if we're going to appreciate what this text is talking about, we we have to try to understand that division a little bit. So, um, Ben Sira, a second century BC Jewish text that would have been reflective of Jewish thinking in the time of Jesus and Paul. Ben Sira connects the value of a person and their honor with their keeping of God's covenant. And so just a minute ago, we did a, we did a catechism, which is right, a teaching tool that gives a question and an answer. Ben Sira has something kind of like this, and l- l- listen to this. What race is worthy of honor? The human race. What race is worthy of honor? Those who fear the Lord. What race is unworthy of honor? The human race. What race is unworthy of honor? Those who transgress the commandments. Now imagine growing up as a Jewish person, growing up and this, this is how you thought about honor and value, uh, the value of persons. You live in a world where you're really weird because you keep Torah. You don't participate in idol worship. You don't go to the various temples. You live in a world where you're really weird and you don't eat with the Gentiles. You don't really associate with the Gentiles. You don't go in the Gentiles' home. And in the language of Ephesians 2, verse 11, you're part of the circumcision. You're the ones who keep covenant. What about about the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the Gentiles living in the Roman Empire? This is how one scholar summarized it. Jews were, in the eyes of the majority, as good as atheists and every bit as dishonorable. Circumcision, the, the mark revered among the Jews as a sign of being included in the covenant of Abraham and the covenant of Moses, was viewed as barbaric mutilation of the human body. Between the prohibition of idols, which would have been present and honored even at a private dinner party by a Greek or a Roman, and the dietary and purity laws of the Torah, Jews were severely restricted in their interaction with non-Jews. 
The majority culture, however, placed a high value on civic unity and participation in the life of the city and all its aspects with the result that the Jews appeared to them to keep strictly to themselves and to harbor barbaric suspicions or even hatred of other races. This became another source of ridicule and insult directed at the Jews whose very way of life came to be despised as a body of xenophobic and retrogressive laws. And these two groups, Ephesians 2 is saying, through the power of the gospel, through Christ, have been made into one new humanity. Look at, look at the text of Ephesians 2, and I want you to notice the language, how it moves from the language of exclusion and alienation and distance to that of belonging. First, the language of exclusion, verse 11. Uncircumcised, right? You, you lack something. You don't have the right family, the national identity. You're the wrong religion. Verse 12, separate, excluded, foreigner. Verse 13 and verse 17, far away. Verse 19, strangers. That last word that's translated strangers there, it's a compound word of this Greek word that means house or household, oikos. So it's oikos and this preposition para, which means alongside of, you might think of, you know, like a paralegal or parachurch. And this is the first of six terms in verses 19 through 22 that's derived from this word oikos, again, meaning house or household. So in verse 19, it's talking about this, that what you once were, you once were a stranger, you were para oikos, you were alongside the house, meaning you were not in and you didn't belong. But through the work of God in Jesus, beautifully pictured in this passage, you've been brought near. You've been reconciled. You've been made to become part of this house. By faith in Jesus through the gospel, through Jesus dying on the cross to reconcile us to God and killing the hostility and reconciling us to one another, Christian, you belong to, verse 15, a new humanity. You belong to a people that's no longer divided. Verse 16, it's one body. Verse 18, it's through Christ as part of this one new humanity that we have access to the Father by one spirit. You see, you used to be strangers, para oikos, alongside the house, not insiders. But now, verse 19, and again, look, look at the text with me. Christian, you are fellow citizens and you are members of the household of God. Second oikos word. And this household of God, verse 20, is built on the foundation, third oikos word, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure, fourth oikos word, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together Fifth oikos word into a dwelling place. Sixth oikos word for God by the Spirit. What does this all mean? The meaning of the household. It's a household that extends the welcome of Christ, 
that's built on the teaching about Christ, that's dependent for its very existence and structure on Christ, being built up together in Christ so that by the Spirit, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can make his dwelling in and among us. The household is the place where we learn what it means to dwell with God, belong to God, as we dwell with and belong to each other. I want you to think about what the household might mean to just normal people, or, or perhaps you. Maybe you've never thought about it, but like, what is the meaning of your house? Is it primarily a place of individual expression? Primarily, primarily a place of productivity and efficiency where you, share, you know, we share responsibilities and we optimize everyone's ability to you know, just go and get a lot of stuff done and win and accomplish and succeed? Or maybe it's a place of security, a place where we can hide or a place of comfort where we can try and just you know, get away from the hard stuff and rest and relax. What would it look like for our households increasingly to be transformed into places that reflect God's vision for the household, the place where we learn to dwell with God and belong to God as we dwell with each other and belong to each other. Because I want you to think about this. How can you and I really be transformed? And how can our community be transformed if this, like, cosmic, huge picture of the gospel doesn't actually touch ground in life. Here's where I want us to think, just briefly, how we see this worked out in the New Testament era, because what I'm going to argue is we see in the New Testament era, we see evidence in the New Testament itself that the details of where the cosmic vision of the household of Ephesians 2 is worked out in the details of people's life in the household. First, remember, there are no church buildings. You met in people's houses. You shared life together. This Jew-Gentile union thing was not this like really nice idea or a really great theology book that was on your shelf. This was something that was lived and experienced and struggled through as people who historically didn't like each other, didn't eat with each other, didn't do life together, are now sitting around the same table, sharing life in one body, in these really weird communities that are centered upon the death and resurrection of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. This is why we have sections in the New Testament like Romans chapter 14 and 15 or uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 where Paul spends what probably seems to us like way too much time talking about food, right? And like what it's okay to eat or not eat and what to do if someone's upset that you ate something and it's, oh my gosh, this is so long. Why, why? This is why how to live together, how to bear with one another, how to not judge each other. Or consider sections of letters like Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. I almost thought about having it printed, but it was going to be way too long. Um, or Colossians chapter 3 and 4 that are sometimes referred to as household codes. Instructions for how the household does life centered on Jesus. What did the gospel change about the household? Everything. 
Right? While men of social status were the clear authorities and the people of power in Paul's day, often using that power in ways that suited them, what does Paul say to husbands? He calls them to die, to lay down their lives for their wives, to cherish and nourish and love them. And while it would not have been strange in Paul's day to speak of a wife's body belonging to her husband, it would have been completely revolutionary to say that's not just true of wives, but husband, your body does not belong to you, but it belongs to your wife. Marriage was transformed as Jesus was placed at the center. And while sexual relationships, especially with men of power, were basically anything goes, do whatever you want, as long as you don't disrupt the Roman social order and mess with some other man who has power, because of the gospel, husbands and wives are called to live out this covenant relationship bound by lifelong commitment, where sexuality is not about power, it's not about personal fulfillment, it's not about meeting some bodily need, but it's about mutual self-giving love meant to point to the greater union and joy of knowing God. And think about the relationship with kids. Like in our world, kids are so central and important to our lives, but that was not the case in the first century. Uh, like women, you know, children were lesser persons. And what does Paul do in Ephesians chapter 6? Paul the apostle, their pastor, speaks directly to them. He doesn't just give parents instructions, he speaks to the children because they belong to this covenant community too and they are persons. The gospel changed the way slaves and masters were to relate to each other. You see this in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4. But in addition to that, some of you may well know the letter Philemon in the New Testament where Paul writes to a wealthy Christian man whose slave had run away the slave met Paul, became a Christian, and Paul calls this wealthy Christian man, this man of relative status and power, to receive his slave back, not as a slave, but as a beloved brother. This is Ephesians 2 being worked out in the details of everyday life. And so let me, let me bring this all together here. I want you to think about it, right? If through Jesus, cosmic redemption and reconciliation has been accomplished, bringing people into right relationship with God and bringing people, uniting them together into this place where together we experience dwelling with God and belonging with God as we dwell and belong with each other. And if that we see was worked out in the New Testament in the details of household life, in specific details of house churches with Jews and Gentiles and literally transforming every relationship that basically existed in that society, Society, then what would faithful, creative household living look like today? In an age of alienation, in an age of disconnection, in an age of loneliness. And this is where I, I'm, I'm glad I started off with the metaphor that I did. If you're playing jazz with a group, you can't just do it by yourself. This is a group project because 
we need, we need a church of jazz musicians, if I could put it that way. We, we need to be able to think about this and work this out together. I, I don't have a nine-point plan for how we do this, but let me offer a few suggestions as we, as we continue to think what this might look like. I think one obvious thing would be for us to ask the question, am I part of a household? And am I pursuing those kinds of relationships where we take shelter under one another's care and dwell with God together. As a diagnostic, let me just read a, a great little section from Andy Crouch's book as you ask this question, am I part of a household and am I pursuing this? Crouch writes this, you are part of a household if there is someone who knows where you are today who has at least some sense of how it feels to be where you are. You are part of a household if people know things about you that you do not know about yourself, including things that if you did know, you would seek to hide. You are part of a household if you experience conflict that is the inevitable companion of closeness. He begins riffing kind of on uh, uh, Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, and he writes this, you are part of a household if sometimes you dream of running away, perhaps to a far country, so that you will not be so terribly well known, and that if your return from that long journey prompts a spontaneous celebration. You are part of a household if when you avoid a party because of your anger, your pride, your guilt, your shame, someone notices and comes out to plead with you to come in. This is the thing that we need more than any other, a community of recognition. No human can flourish as a person unless they are seen and treated as one, and for that the household is the first and best place. We need a place where we cannot hide. We need a place where we cannot get lost. So much of the tragedy of the modern world comes down to this. Most of us do not have such a place. Here's where I would say Trinity is actually different. Gloriously different. Not perfect, but different because I, I know and I have experienced in this church this kind of welcome and care. And I know others who have experienced it and who are seeking to live out this vision of the household. I've heard others very recently talk about how they felt the welcome of this church, how they felt like they, they were wanted here and they were sought to be known here. I know of stories of people, whether it's been in community group or discipleship group or just relationships in this church, where they have found shelter and care and that kind of belonging that Crouch speaks of. And yet, I think if all of us just think about the world that we're in, this is only going to be more and more important for us as a church if we are to be Christ's beautiful church for the good of the world, for the good of our communities. And so especially as we think about our world and how complex this calling could be on us, I, I, I want to offer um, from Galatians 6, one way that we might kind of organize how to at least move forward. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are, are of the household of faith. So let me say, I think we must start 
by remembering the importance of nurturing households here and being transformed by the way of Jesus here. And so we ought to continue to strive to build relationships with one another where we can take shelter under one another's care and, and do this remembering that all of us need this here, right? Kids need this here and those who are single need this here and married people who look like they're having the best life ever perhaps and they have kids and they have these perfect nuclear families. I'm not saying that my family is perfect but I'm just saying what might appear like the perfect life, I need that. And I know many of us in that situation need that as well. I've been incredibly blessed in this church to have people love my kids and show up to my son's soccer game or share in our family. We need this, all of us. This is jazz. Somebody might have to make the first move. I don't know what it looks like, but we have to work together. And as we do that, as we do this here, from that place, then we should be asking questions and thinking, how do we extend the welcome of household to this world? How do we do good to all? Just consider some of these things. I want you to think about the reality. About 120,000 children in the U.S. are waiting to be adopted. 16,000 kids are in the foster care system in Illinois. 1,200 of those kids age out every year. If I'm not mistaken, it's at age 21 left to figure it out. Think about refugees, people who have lost basically everything and are trying to start over in a new place where they don't know anyone and don't know how it works. Think about singles who never marry or those because of divorce or separation or other family situations or left it alone. Think about people who once had family but because of tragedy or they're just nearing the end of their life. Their lives that used to be full are now empty. These and certainly many other examples that we could think of are people who need a church who will embody the vision of the household. And so what I'd like to invite us to do um, at the close of our service this morning, we're going to sing uh, a song that is one of my personal favorites that we sing, Your Labor is Not in Vain. And as we sing that, I want to invite you to envision what we've talked about here, God's vision for the household, and to Proclaim as we sing that in your heart that because of the resurrection of Jesus, your labor for this vision of the household will not be in vain. And in particular, when we sing that last verse, I know my mind tends to immediately go to think about, you know, Aaron, my wife, and my two kids. But let me invite you as we sing about the houses we labored to build to think beyond that to think about people in your community group, in your discipleship group, to think about people in this church and to proclaim the hope that we have that Christ is with us, that Christ is doing these things and that we can trust him as we labor for the household.